Hello, I'm your host Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest edition of the Bandaflix podcast. So in this episode, thanks to Movie House Cinemas and Belfast Film Festival, I'm joined by director Mars Sweeney and producer Ed Maloney as we talk about the documentary I, Dolores. Film screened this week here in the city as part of the Belfast Film Festival's Pool Focus Documentary Festival. I got a chance to talk with Ed and Mars at the Europa Hotel to talk about the film. And then after that interview, I'll be joined by local blogger Alan Meebin as we share thoughts on the film. I certainly advocated that informers should be thrown out, their bodies should be thrown out on the street to put the fear of God and the Republican movement into anybody who would choose that form of life. So that's a clip of I, Dolores, and I'm joined now by the film's director, Morris Sweeney, and producer Ed Maloney. Morris, I'm going to start with yourself. For any of our listeners who might not know about Dolores Price, tell me a little bit about this documentary. I, Dolores, is a, I suppose, a biopic feature documentary, drama documentary, uh, that details Dolores Price uh, as an active IRA member and her subsequent life after being imprisoned and the effects of that. Uh, It comes from a series of interviews she gave to journalist Ed Maloney around 2010, which kind of, for a very candid, very open, very truthful uh, tellings of her story, which would not be released until after her death. And the result is, is a film, I, Dolores, which is kind of keeping that promise that Ed gave to Dolores. It is very candid, having watched the film a few weeks ago at the movie house. Uh, this is, in a way, this is your baby. Uh, and I know you've done similar projects in the past. Tell me a little bit about how the, that interview came about at the first place and then kind of the genesis, because Dolores passed away in 2013. Yeah. And then how we get from there to where we are now, sitting right. in this lovely room in the Europa? Well, um, first of all, I'd known Dolores Price for some long time. Uh, I was at Queen's during the early civil rights movement. She was at St. Mary's uh, Teacher Training College. Uh, the meetings that created the PD and the marches and civil rights marches that started off the, that, that phase of the troubles were held in the Students' Union at Queen's. She was there. I was there. So we sort of had that shared experience in a sense, but I didn't really get to know her until, A, she came out of jail uh, in 1981, 82. Um, And then when I was writing my book on the IRA and the peace process, The Secret History of the IRA, um, I interviewed her along with quite a few other Republican activists uh, about uh, her experiences. And a lot of the stories um, which are contained in the film have their genesis. You can look at uh, voices of from the uh, voices from the grave, and you can now identify, you know, Dolas as one of the sources for some of them, including the existence of this IRA unknowns. 2009, I went over with a, a film production company based in New York to make a film based on um, Voices from the Grave, which was Brendan Hughes's interviews and David Irvine's interviews, IRA and UVF interviews. Um, and initially, I was um, interested in interviewing Dolas about some of the aspects of, of her, her life in terms of the relationship that she could talk about in relation to um, Brendan Hughes and Jerry Adams, which a lot of the film is about. Um, and uh, at that stage, a member of her family asked me not to interview her uh, because she was um, uh, suffering psychological trauma, let's say. She suffered from PTSD as a result of her prison experiences, the force feeding and stuff like that. 
and uh, she was this was catching up with her. So I readily agreed, and there the matter would have uh, would have laid and would have been the end of it, except that um, it was revealed that um, a guy called Joe Linsky, uh, an IRA member, senior IRA member in Belfast, had been disappeared by the IRA, but his name had been kept off the list of disappeared. Uh, um, submitted by the IRA to the, 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 the two governments, the British and Irish governments, and also the American government. And I, my, my view very strongly is that the re-emergence of the Jolinsky uh, story uh, sent uh, Dolas into a bit of a tailspin. Jolinsky was a brigade intelligence officer in Belfast. She was a member of this Unknowns group. The Unknowns did a lot of intelligence work, so she got to know Jolinsky very well. Uh, she, he was a friend of hers. Jolinsky, for most of his adult life, was a, a monk. He left um, the monastery to join the IRA and became quite a senior figure in the IRA. But he was untutored in the ways of the world, shall we say, and he fell in love with um, the wife of a fellow volunteer. And in those days, uh, the idea of getting divorced in West Belfast was much worse than killing someone. So instead of getting divorced, they hatched the plot to get this guy killed, naming him as an informer and, and hoping that uh, he would uh, be killed as a result. The operation went entirely pear-shaped. ended up with Jolinsky having to confess his part in this. He was court-martialed by the IRA, sentenced to death, and Dolas was given, and this was the first of the disappeared, was given the job of taking him across the border uh, to uh, his ultimate fate. He, she handed him over to other people who then took him away. Um, so it was just him and her driving down in, in the car. They were friends. Jolinsky was strong enough to like hit her on the head and run away, jump out of the car, but he never did so because he, he believed in the IRA ethos. He believed in their rules and regulations. He believed that he deserved what was going to happen to him. He believed in all of that stuff, right? Uh, and so she... So did she, and and you know she resisted the thought that maybe you know she would let him, she would drive him to the, to the ferry and let him escape. Um, but I think it left a psychological mark on her, which returned when the peace process started, because the the memory of someone who was so principled about the IRA's rules and regulations and ethos and aims and what have you contrasted somewhat with the direction that the IRA was being taken at that time. And I think she transferred a lot of that anger and guilt uh, you know, as a result of Joe Linsky. And she gave an interview to the Irish News. Another article very closely associated or related to that interview appeared in the Sunday Life. Uh, she then was threatening to give more interviews. Now, as a journalist, I've always believed that you, know, you are nothing without your sources. You, you have a moral responsibility to the people who give you stories and you must look after them. In Dola's sense, she had um, helped me with the, with the uh, Voices from the Grave book. Uh, she had helped me with uh, Secret History of the IRA. Um, and uh, um, um, here she was, uh, uh, threatening to go into a downward psychological spiral, the consequences of which uh, were difficult to predict. So I made a proposal to her, which was... And I did it in pretty strong terms. I was I laid down the law with her to a certain extent, you know, that she had to stop doing this. Um, otherwise, uh, goodness knows what would happen to herself, to her family, whatever. Um, 
and that the, the arrangement would be that, okay, she wanted her story told. She had given interviews to Boston College, but she hadn't told this story to Boston College. Uh, as I've said to other interviewers, it's a long time since I've read the interviews, but I'm pretty sure there's not even a mention of G. McComb in the Boston College interviews, right? Um, so she was, you know, she had this, she wanted to tell this story, uh, but if she did so in these circumstances, the consequences would be utterly unpredictable, and goodness knows what the consequences would be. So I said to her, okay, you want to tell the story? We'll sit down, we'll do the interview, um, and I give you my word, once you're dead, then the story can be told. And also, if I, if, if I survive you, if you predecease me, then I will do my best to make sure that the story is, is told in a, in a proper and fitting way. And that's where we are, and that's how we ended up with this story. But the, the actual making of the film and with content, that was, that's left to Morris and, and to the producers. Uh, but in terms of the, in, the central integral promise that was made, I see that very much as a fulfillment of that. So back to yourself then, Morris. I mean, there's a few things I'm intrigued with the documentary because I'm sure that there is a central challenge in heart to make a straight-to-camera, to almost interview yes. cinematic. So then we have that mix of archive footage, which is fantastic, mm -hmm. and then we have these dramatic reenactments. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me a little bit about how you settled on that with making this documentary as, as cinematic as possible. Um, well, I felt it was a very... Honestly, if, as a filmmaker, you're looking for that kind of three-act structure that makes a great film and a great story. Her story fit perfectly into that. There's moments of the end of Act 1, she's struggling with what she does, does she join the IRA or not? Uh, you know, Act 2. So in a very kind of purely selfish film, it, from my point of view, it, it had that cinematic quality of, as a story. I can imagine as a full drama. You know, at dinner. But we had a really evocative interview when she, like, when Dolores stares into the camera, you feel her looking at you. It's very uh, candid. Um, and I really just felt we needed to get out of that room sometimes and the story had to breathe. And I think if I just pasted the whole film with archive and photographs, I think we would, we would have been lost. I don't think we would have stayed with her voice as much. So it was a very much a, an idea that, look, I'm very aware there are people who can't stand drama documentary, you know. Um, but I, I like messing around with the form. And I think documentary should be messed around with a lot more. Errol Morris does it all the time. No, and I, I mean, I think it's very important that we find ways of telling stories that aren't the usual kind of primetime investigates or a spotlight program thing. This is a bigger story. It was a, a universal story that I always saw of a young, intelligent woman who was radicalised to a certain extent, but made decisions on, on, by herself and how that ended up. And for me, it was a wonderful story. And I just wanted a kind of a a fresh way of telling that story without it being preached at through archive all the time or other people interviewing you and giving you the other side of the story. Oh, Dolores would have done that. And, and to be honest with you, the, the people we would have interviewed didn't want to be interviewed. Um, I mean, this is a very sensitive subject. Um, and I think myself and Edwin were writing the script. We have this interview, we have our voice. That's all we need. That, that was our decision made for us, you know. So, Did you come in... Did you come in with kind of preconceptions of Dolores before you kind of sat down to work on this project? And and did you kind of throughout the, the process of making this this project, this documentary, did those views change or did they alter your, your thoughts towards her? Um, I, I, I had very mixed emotions myself at the editor, McMahon, because before we cut any frame, we listened and listened and listened and read and read and read before we 
put anything on the floor or you know as we leave it on the on the editing desk I mean we just listened and listened so I mean, parts of it were quite harrowing I was sympathetic to her because I thought she was a fascinating woman it was actually funny my father knew her um after her release from prison um he had talked to me about what she was like. Um, I had read about her, stuff like that. So I think it was important that I had that removed that I didn't didn't know her, to be honest with you. Because I think Ed had done an amazing interview with us. We were given this kind of gold as such. Um, and it just, it was kind of taking that ball and running with it, really. But I kind of think I needed to be that removed. Um, but what I found out with, uh, like any film you make when you spend a few years doing it, you... I wouldn't say I sympathise, but I was able to remove myself from her as well. I think you know, so that's important to think to do. I think there's definitely things I mean that that opened my. I never thought of kind of bulimia when that kind of that kind of that issues that that kind of brings up, um, in that that sense. Um, but the one other thing I was really in, intrigued by, and I come back to that point about using the archive and the dramatic reenactments. It's Lorna Larkin plays that role. Talk me through the casting of her. I mean, the likeness, you know, when you see her, is it is uncanny. But when you see that, I mean, the decision to, to do that and then the casting of Lorna. Casting was very hard. We'd approached a lot of actors to do things, very well-known actors, um, who were fascinated by it, but I think shied away at the end because the figure of Stephen Ray loomed large in the background. <clears throat> and there's nothing against Stephen. Stephen didn't actively tell people not to do it or anything like that. I think just... It's a difficult moment, I think, for people. But Lorna was great. She had that kind of almost that Bette Davis kind of face that could, could could play any character. She had that face. And actually, funny enough, she'd been out with Stephen Ray one night and they were having a few drinks at some ceremony and he said, you remind me of my ex-wife. <clears throat> so I think she was destined to play the part, really. But it was a hard job casting. But uh, she she brought a lot of bravery to it. She just was open to it. It was great, yeah. Bringing it back to yourself, Ed, this, you've mentioned some of your previous projects, and there's similar projects that are similar to this, that are, are, are slightly different in a way that it gives a kind of two-toned approach, a, a balanced approach we have from almost two sides of the coin. This was a different style of documentary. I mean, Morris is kind of talking about there, but was that always what you wanted and when you sat down to produce this documentary, <clears throat> that it was always going to be Dolores's voice? I, I, th I think so, although as, as Morris explained, I mean, that, that sort of happened um, almost uh, not accidentally, but certainly not on purpose, right? And it, it developed in the, in, by circumstances, but it, it, it happened, I think, in a happy way for us. I think it's made a, made a much, much better film. But the, the idea that, you know, oh God, a boring interview in which, you know, she says something and then you have someone else coming on condemning what she's just said as being this, that, the other and unacceptable or someone else uh, contesting what she said, which is your, your usual documentary uh, format, I think would have diminished and, de and demeaned the whole movie. And I think it's so much better. I think Morris has done a fantastic job uh, uh, by concentrating on, on Dola's and telling her story. And we're... We're very lucky in the sense that she was extraordinarily articulate on that day, um, and uh, she she did a, she made a wonderful interviewee, uh, and uh, so you know we were fortunate in that respect. But um, no, I wouldn't. I, I I think it's so much better than your usual conventional boring old documentary. You know, so much better. One thing I want to come back to as someone who, well, I'm a qualified journalist. I still say it with a small J. I'm kind of intrigued, going back to yourself at that time, the building that relationship, not just generally with Dolores, but generally to have your interviews as open and as frank 
as they were? I mean, do you is that something that crops into your mind? Is it something you do you have a, a method, a style, an approach for? Uh, it's a question of trust. You have to build up trust with people, and that's a, a, a matter of creating a bit of a reputation for um, you know for not letting sources down, standing by them, not betraying them, so on and so forth. People know that when they talk to you, they and they say off the record, it's off the record, and you know if it's not going to be used, it's not going to be used, and if it is going to be used, then it will be used in a responsible way. So you build up that trust, you know, and I think that's the only way you can do it. If I can ask you both, like tonight the film has been screened as part of the, the Pool Focus documentary here in Belfast. You know, the film, it, it is frank, it is honest, it does touch on delicate subject matter. There, there's no denying it that here in Belfast, I mean, there's always been a sense with anything that deals with the troubles that those wounds, whilst healed, are maybe still raw. You know, we're sitting here a couple of hours before the screen and there's a Q&A afterwards, you know, is that cropping into your head how it's going to go down towards a local audience here in Belfast? Oh, absolutely. I'm very conscious of it. I'm quite nervous about it as well, to be honest with you. I mean, it, but in a good way, I think, uh, look, our, my responsibility as a filmmaker is to tell a story to an audience and the audience is the bums on seats is the important thing, you know, and the, the more bums on seats, the better. Um, but it's, there's an added spice to tonight because it's a lot of the films set, the seeds of it are set in Belfast and the consequences. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I am looking, I'm nervous, but I am genuinely looking forward to a reaction of a Belfast audience because they're, they're coming to it with a knowledge that for instance, if we showed it in Canada, they wouldn't have, you know, have that knowledge of the troubles. So um, yeah, it's, it's a special night. <laughs> what about yourself, Ed? Yeah, so I'm, I'm I, sort of as, uh, like, like Morris, sort of mildly apprehensive, but also uh, intrigued to see what the, the response will be. Um, you know, this is an audience which uh, will be, uh, in, the, in most cases, uh, much more aware of the nuances and the, the subtleties and what have you, which just totally escapes, as Morris says, a, an audience in Canada or even in Galway, you know, uh, where it was, was also received very well. But, uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to be interested to see what, how people think what they think about the film, how it affects them. They, they may go in there with sort of preconceived notions mm. about the film. I want to know whether uh, at the end of that they're sitting there thinking, you know, and I've mentioned this before to, to, to others, that um, when we did a, a press screening in Dublin and afterwards the PR person went round and asked the various reporters and correspondents their views. And it was striking that there were quite a few people uh, who said that they were still processing the film. And I think that is the greatest compliment that could be made to what Morris has done here, that people are made to think about the film, that they may went, may have gone into the, uh, the, the cinema with you know, a fairly good idea of what, they, what to expect, and suddenly it's very different, and they have to sit down and think about it. That's great. You can't ask for any more than that. I would completely agree. I mean, I remember coming on that screen and I, processing is a very good way of putting it. I'm someone who comes from a very different background to Dolores and it was that sense of, you know, the kind of To Kill a Mockingbird, kind of getting a sense of kind of walk around in somebody else's skin and, and think of from, from their point of view. Um, I will not start to ramble about my own thoughts now, but I, I am aware that I have to bring this interview to a close. Um, but I wanted to ask you just very, very generally, you know, as I said, this is screened as part of the Pool Focus Festival, a documentary, a festival dedicated to documentary filmmaking here in, in Belfast. As a platform for documentaries like this, you know, how important do you feel it is that we have this type of film festival here within the city? I think it's, a, it's part of a movement all over the world now. Documentary 
is going to cinema a lot more. There's been success even in the, the, the Troubles have provided some really important stories over the last few years from Bobby Sands' 66 Todays to kind of like Dolores and other where people are um, exploring issues on the big screen with documentary, it hasn't been compartmentalised into the small screen where we have to ask, as Ed says, you have to be kind of have a reaction to something that has to be balanced. You know, we make editorial decisions as filmmakers and we put them up on the screen and that's what we do. And we make no apologies for it. So having a documentary festival uh, such as Belfast, and I'd love to see more in, in down south, and I, you know, I was at Sheffield, which was amazing. It's just a really intelligent audience that goes along and explores a new genre of filmmaking. And I suppose I love messing around with form. Mm -hmm. And I think there's no better platform than a festival to try that out. And yourself? Yeah, I, 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 I wish this festival uh, the really the best of good fortunes in the future. And I think it's very important that they took this decision to site themselves in the centre of town so that it would be accessible to everyone in this city and that you wouldn't be going or have the feeling of having to go into a ghetto to, to see a particular documentary that you, you could attract people from north, south, east and west of this city. And that's very important. I totally agree. And on that, that note, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, good luck with this evening. Thank you very much for your time. So that's my interview with Ed Maloney and Mars Sweeney, and I'm joined now by Alan Meeban. Alan, we're going to be talking a little bit more detail about the, the documentary. There's no need to, to set anything up. You know, we've already discussed what the documentary is all about. You and I have both seen this, and we'll kind of start with you. Generally, your thoughts on the documentary. I think it's interesting to kind of allow somebody who was involved in the Troubles to tell their story, because mostly we only see that in court cases um, and occasionally in kind of weird memoirs, but actually rarely do we get to see somebody staring nearly at the camera, or at least staring at the interviewer with one camera, actually telling a bit about why they got involved with violence, um, why they got involved with, um, why they thought it was okay to kind of be ferrying people across the border to their deaths, um, why they thought it was okay to be part of kind of the old Bailey bombing and so on. So we, we rarely hear that mostly because we really don't want to and it's quite disturbing. But it is interesting to kind of let somebody tell the tale. It's kind of interesting because it's also from the grave, because uh, it was recorded um, quite a few years ago now and only released after uh, Dolores' death. And it's also quite disturbing, I think, because you see somebody who starts off at the beginning of the film explaining about their dogma, explaining about their kind of idealism, about republicanism, about what this kind of conflict was to achieve, and then... By the end of it, you actually get a quote that says, you know, to realise that it had all been for nothing. And you think of the devastation, the death, um, the torment that people went through because of that idealism. And then for somebody at the end who was involved to say that it was, you know, it had all been for nothing. And that's incredibly disturbing, I think, as a film to see. I think it's, a, it's interesting to see. I don't think it's going to be a pleasant watch for people. I think if you were Jim McConville's family, this is not a pleasant film. Uh, and it does not give them the answers, really, that they want. And there are many people who will probably say, oh, bits of it aren't quite true, or bits of it are revisionist, or bits of it are kind of tweaking it. Um, you know, this is unchallenged testimony. But it is um, still an interesting bit of oral history slightly visual uh, with reconstruction to try and understand a little bit about what the terrible things that were going on in people's minds that would let them do terrible things. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, it's been two weeks since we've seen this, you know, I, and at the time when we both came out after watching this, I think we both kind of had similar thoughts because we are from a very different kind of background mm -hmm. than Dolores Price. Yet, and it's that idea, 
and I know I mentioned that in the interview of, of that kind of To Kill a Mockingbird idea, that motif of being able to get into somebody else's skin and walk around in them and see things from their perspective. And we definitely see them from Dolores Price's perspective. And that, I think, is why it is so uncomfortable. I still think there's a sense, you, you've kind of touched on it, it is unchallenged mm-hmm. testimony, you know, and there's a certain sense of there's, there's wounds here in, in Northern Ireland, you know, that the troubles may be over, but those wounds haven't fully healed. And there's a frankness and a candidness about this documentary. There's a certain sense of, of you know, like being not kind of beaten about the bush. There's a certain sense with Dolores, you've mentioned Jean McConville, but we also have, you know, with, with Jerry Adams, a certain sense of, of throwing him underneath the bus mm-hmm. in terms of, of the openness of, of his kind of statements of being not being involved with oh. the IRA. I mean, I, I mean, it's, 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 in some ways it's selective, um, it's revisionist, it's revengeful, it's rose-tinted, it's brutally honest, it's very lucid, um, which is interesting because actually um, her health wasn't meant to be good at the time, which was one of the reasons why Ed Maloney kind of kind of let her do the interview with him and promised them that they, they, she wouldn't do any other interviews. You know, So uh, it's kind of an interesting piece if you kind of know some of the background of what was going on with Dolores, um, what was going on with her sister Marion. You know, uh, and if you kind of realise about the family and even how she dies and her... Um, I think and some of the other disturbing things I think within this film that kind of get to you are kind of realising about the kind of the force feeding within prison when they were in hunger strike um, and the effect that had on her afterwards, the kind of bulimia and lots of other um, kind of mental health problems that kind of led from that. And just to see all of that kind of led out um, tells you a bit about the complexity and the pain of the troubles. But I think you come back to the just kind of naming, you know, the the, the victims, if you like, that she was kind of ferrying across the border. And um, we laugh at one point because she was kind of robbing banks dressed up as a nun or something, you know. Uh, and that's kind of nearly funny, uh, in a sense. But it's kind of very quickly kind of blackened by just the kind of this honest account of why it was okay to take people in a car, including one of the guys who was her friend. And he knew what was happening. He knew that he was driving with her and would not be coming back. You know, and to be able to kind of tell that story, um, a, it's a warning to us all never to get back into that kind of situation in this country, but also to try and understand and question how on earth did that happen in the first place? How was that okay? Uh, and what drove people to do it? So it's an uncomfortable bit of film. Um, it's probably a film that never should have been made in some ways. It never was a plan to be made. It's kind of an accident. Um, it's probably one of the few bits of oral history coming out of the Boston College tapes that actually, kind of, despite the tapes, this is here. Um, it is unchallenged, and there's lots to be done to try and unpick what the real story is. And I don't think it tells us anything new, and that's also a disappointment. I don't think we learned anything that we hadn't really already had on the record. Well, I know, I know you say that, and I, I get completely what you're saying. One thing I had never really thought of or had I'd heard of was that sense of the... You, you touched on the, the bulimia as a result mm-hmm. of the kind of force feeding from the hunger strikes. That is something... It's that sense of, I come back to kind of getting into somebody else's kind of into shoes, into their skin, and kind of seeing things from their perspective. And... There is a sense that I'm from watching this, I can understand why we see someone who went from being in the civil rights movement to this kind of this mm-hmm. militant republicanism. You can see, in a sense, the kind of the thought strings. You can see the reasoning behind it, and there's a certain sense you get a better sense of understanding whether you grow to empathise or sympathise. Whether that's completely down to the viewer. Um, there is, as you've touched on, this sense of someone who then is 
becomes completely disillusioned with the, the the result of the peace process, which is an intriguing point of thing. This idea that it was a kind of a sellout and that that sacrifice by so many, as you said, was was for nothing. I'm. There is aspects of it I like. Now, I wanted to come back to, because it was one of the things we, we touched on in the interview, this idea of making what is essentially you know, an interview with, with Dolores Price straight down the lens mm-hmm. of the camera. Basically, There's only one camera. Yeah, there, there is moments where she's literally just staring straight at you in, in your cinema seat. But to make it cinematic, we have this, this use of archive footage, mm-hmm. which is great. The only really person that kind of challenges her is this archive footage use of uh, the Reverend Ian Paisley. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have this dramatic reenactments. I still sit here, s- two weeks after viewing this film, still still undecided whether those work as devices to make this documentary more cinematic. But, but what's your thoughts? I think L- Lorna Larkin does an okay job um, kind of becoming Dolores Price and trying to kind of tell us what that young woman was like. Um, I th- the reconstruction, I mean, cinematically, documentary point of view, they had to do something to break it up because it was literally filmed. It was, it was filmed in a hurry and it was clearly filmed one camera and um, very fixed shot. It doesn't even kind of change in terms of zoom, so it's just the same shot every time she comes on. But what, what didn't work with the reconstruction was every now and again, um, kind of Lorna as an actress effectively is narrating what's going on. Um, and I, at one point I nearly feared that was I going to turn to camera and stare out and kind of break the fourth wall and actually just address as, as an audience. You know, because it felt we were getting very, very close to that moment. And that's where I think it, it kind of fails because there's too much, um, kind of we're being told too much by the reconstruction orally as opposed to just watching it or hearing conversations uh, and so I think if a lot more effort had gone into that reconstruction and kind of framing it better it could have been a bit better uh, on the other hand it was always going to be a bit raw um, and in some ways I'm glad it's not a polished film um, the, the reason people will go and see it or not go and see it will never be based around whether it's a good quality thing it's about whether they're interested in hearing that kind of first-hand testimony um, and it reminds us in some ways that actually with the, the kind of whole thing around the Belfast tapes and the Boston College stuff, you know, those tapes are effectively lost. Those tapes will not be coming out when people die. Um, those tapes um, are in the hands of the police, potentially, um, though they may not have been able to unseal them and use them yet. So uh, th- that oral history thing is dead, and this proves to us what the value of it was, but also what the limitations were. It is autobiographical. Uh, it is not complete. There are things that people will not say. Um, and in this case, this has gone much further, probably, than she did say on her tapes, because um, she didn't talk about the disappeared way we understand um, so this time she did um, and so we've under- we've, we get to hear stuff we otherwise wouldn't have heard uh, and so I kind of I, f- I fear that we've learned from this that A you know, people's testimony is a bit unreliable but actually it's very interesting and it's completely lost because this is probably one of the last times you'll see somebody who was an actor with a, a pretty brutal role in The Troubles actually volunteering to tell their story it's nearly like truth recovery um, except it does nothing for those families because it doesn't give them any information that they really wanted to hear and there is no sense of challenge no sense of asking questions um, we very rarely hear Ed Maloney ask anything you know it's mostly just being to- being told and edited and uh, there's a bit of an audio tape in the middle of it as well at one point an extra interview um, but it, it's 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 kind of dissatisfying on the other hand I'm kind of glad it's there and I think for a lot of people I don't think it'll have brilliant audiences but actually it's 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 not that long and it's I think it's an interesting bit of our history it's, I think it's worth watching um, you don't have to like the woman uh, you, you'll not change your view of her when you come out but you may kind of question humanity a bit and you may question actually should we have had more of that 
you've said a lot there, and there's a lot you know, I could unpack. Just while you were while you were speaking, I'm kind of thinking in my head. You know, we've just celebrated the the 20th anniversary of the the Good Friday mm-hmm. Agreement, and of course that's mentioned within this this documentary. You know, how important do you feel it is? We have generation in Northern Ireland who've grown up in peace times. Mm-hmm. How important do you feel it is? Whilst we might not necessarily agree with the politics on display here, how important do you feel it is we get viewers, younger viewers, getting to see this type of testament on a big screen? Well, I think we're in the summer of 2018, and it kind of... With no government, with no executive, you know, kind of for the last few years, we're we're kind of in a point where actually, from a security point of view, um, strange things are starting to happen again. You know, there are teenagers being put into the back of bundled into the back of cars, beaten up, and kind of thrown out. You know, that is not something that was happening a year ago. That had nearly kind of gone away. We're seeing a lot more kind of punishment shootings um, and that kind of thing. And this is, you know, we are sliding back, not very far, but we are sliding back a little bit to where we had got to with the security situation. I think it's important that people realise kind of where that leads to. It leads to these kind of things where somebody rationally can say that I just knew I had to bring them across the border and leave them there, knowing that somebody else would kill them, and in one case had to come back and kill them because the local guys wouldn't do it. You know, it's that, that's um, the horribleness of where this leads to and kind of gangsterism, which becomes a kind of paramilitarism. We need to understand that and the, um, I'm afraid each generation has to learn that lesson locally because we haven't forgotten how to do this stuff. And so I think it is important that it, at least it gets done. I think the cinemas are reasonably brave putting it on because there probably will be some protests and, you know, kind of you know, go well, those people who protest because there is stuff to protest about. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think this glorifies terrorism, but I think it tells us a little... It's a scary insight into what was going on and... We don't even at something like Fela, you know, which can kind of have a chief constable sitting beside two people who are kind of representing organisations or communities who have had the kind of violent pasts. You know, that kind of conversation is quite rare. Um, not many people get to see it. The cinema is a place where you can at least do it. Um, so I think it's, it's a reasonable thing to do. Um, it's just interesting that this was a complete accident. You know, this was not planned in 2010 that this would be recorded and this would go out. So th- this is kind of, I assume Ed Maloney may have told us, you know, this is out, it was kind of out of his hands. This was a rescue attempt uh, to, to prevent somebody making something worse. Uh, and in a way, maybe it's good that it happened. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, the one thing I, I do from, the one thing I take from watching this and from speaking to Ed about this, I'm, I'm really impressed by the relationship he's able to build with his interviewees to give them that space to talk so candidly and talk so openly. It's whether or not you come back to it, whether you fully agree, whether you fully trust what your interviewee is saying, and that might be a discussion for another time, but it's coming back to a key thing you did say, Alan, about this unchallenged test. I mean, it's not yeah. really till the closing credits do we have either the McConville family or even Jerry Adams given the space or platform to contest what is said within this this feature. I know from speaking to both Ed and Morris you know, earlier, they kind of said there was people that they approached but that it came back that there was people that, as I say, there was people that was approached that declined to interview. I, I don't know who that was necessarily. But I, I don't know how you would have been able to do this type of documentary as a kind of talking head piece where, where we have the challenge. So, I mean, you know, you're just your kind of thoughts on the kind of limitations of that being unchallenged and your thoughts on maybe how you would have sought to kind of address that, that, those issues and address that, that subject matter. 
I mean, we've had a couple of films recently that have been looking at kind of, I feel like kind of prisoners. We have some stuff coming up in Pool Focus, um, kind of documentary festival as well. Uh, there have been other films kind of looking at different gangs, kind of doing different things in different areas. So we've kind of, we've been looking at kind of the history of the Troubles a little bit, maybe twice a year, kind of in films in Northern Ireland. Um, it's, it's interesting to obviously ask, what's the motivation for making this, either for the filmmaker or for the people who are kind of wanting to give their testimony? And I think um, we would kind of look at those. There's always the question of those who were going to be involved. A lot of people involved were not going to give any information out in case they ever got done. You know, so who was left? Why were they doing it? Was it because they were kind of anti-Republican? They were kind of anti the where Sinn Féin were kind of taking the Republican movement? Were they anti-Adams? Um, or were they just actually wanting to get actually wanting to do the decent thing and to kind of tell people what was going on so that they would know? You know, and we've kind of all that swirls around your head when I watch this. So, uh, you know, as somebody who's into politics, um, I think it's interesting. Um, I think it doesn't do the people who tell the story any good. Um, in this case, they're dead. Um, but actually, you know, they, they don't confess. They don't say sorry. They don't um, show any kind of contrition. Um, in some ways, they make it worse for the actual victims and the families who are a bit more re-traumatised by the fact that we keep talking about this stuff. You know, and there's at least four families kind of, you know, mentioned uh, in the film. Um, but on the other hand, I think for society, it's important. And I don't think we should shy away from making it. Um, but I'm not sure Ed Maloney and Morris are the people who should be making all the films about this, and, and they're not. I don't think they have a whole slate of these that they're, you know, interviews that they're going to bring out. Uh, and I think some of the other works are better at actually kind of trying to expose something that was bad going on, to tell us not for the first time, but in the most coherent way, here's what was going on, kind of bringing the police ombudsman in and actually kind of having a big story about stuff. That was kind of was a much more interesting film, but actually this one, well, at least it's short. It does... It, kind of does what it's meant to do and that stops because they run out of footage and it stops you know and I guess it's the last thing we'll hear about the disappeared on screen so yeah um, go and see it um, but don't expect some kind of critical analysis like, remind yourself that this is like an autobiography um, why, are, why are they telling you this bit of their story what are they not telling you those are all good questions to ask yourself while you're sitting looking at the screen thinking why is he doing this now you know, and, and you don't kind of get the sense of that background of what was going on and why this was rushed through and suddenly taped. You don't get that um, in the actual film. You have to read about that afterwards yourself, really. Okay. Alan, we shall have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that pretty much brings this podcast to a close. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. If you can't wait until then, don't forget you can check out our website for our complete back catalogue.